Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. This week we will be discussing family resilience. Hi, yeah. Um, so the first thing I'm going to uh, ask you both to do is briefly introduce yourself uh, with your occupation and your field. So I'll do my own introduction uh, as an example first. So uh, I'm Nicole Creasy. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Amsterdam and also a member of the steering committee for the Resilience Research Group. So my research is on parenting and parenting programs and the role of those in children's stress resilience. Uh, so if we can go to Gretchen. I'm Gretchen Pianca. I'm a pediatrician in Maine. Um, my um, passion is helping families raise resilient children and I'm the founder of a program I call Re Resilience University. Thank you. And Jay? I'm Jay Mancini, and uh, I'm a Professor Emeritus at Virginia Tech, the Department of Human Development, uh, but currently adjunct professor at University of, uh, of Georgia. My research area, uh, well, it, it's diminished. I think Jennifer knows this. Uh, I'm a retired guy, uh, but but uh, when I still uh, do some, some studies, it's still related to community capacity and how communities positively affect families. And the other, the other stream of research is on the mental well-being of military members and their families. Thank you. Okay, so I will um, get started with the question. So first of all, what is family resilience and how would you define it? So I would say um, my working, the way I describe it to families, because I'm mostly working with families, so I, I try to use language that's really easily digestible. So I just say resilience is sort of your distress tolerance. So your ability to endure stress and not break, fall apart, implode, explode, or collapse. So that families can just kind of keep functioning despite having um, kind of unexpected or unpleasant stressors. Thank you. And Jay, do you have a similar definition of family resilience? Uh, I, I like to think of it as, as the ability of, of, of a family to wrestle well with adversity. Um, and uh, I think that implies uh, quite a bit of what Gretchen, in fact, fact said. Um, and so when I think about family resilience, I, I, I think about um, what is a family's history with adversity? And then how are they bringing that history in, into the present to deal with uh, whatever is particularly challenging uh, at, uh, at the present. And so what are some of the key elements um, that you think underlie family resilience? Well, well I, earlier today I pulled up um, not, nothing that I had done, but a paper from uh, a, a U.S. Uh, family therapist named Froma Walsh. You may, you may be familiar with Walsh's uh, work, um, but she talks about the various processes in family resilience. And I'm, I'm not gonna read all of this, but I would like to read just one or two, one or two elements. Uh, one has to do with positive outlook. And then she has um, a lot of elements under that, such as um, 
um, encourage active initiative and perseverance that in those five or six others. She also talks about family flexibility. That is, that is whatever capacity a family has to kind of sort of respond effectively to surprises or to the unan unanticipated, as opposed to being locked into just one way of doing family uh, business. She also talks about connectedness, uh, talks about communication and problem solving, and, and a lot of a lot of other pieces as as well. But I think the key the key piece from from Walsh is that she takes very much a, a a process and interactional approach to families doing well in the face of adversity. Gretchen, yeah, I I, I love that description. I think um, my kind of my work with families has largely been to try to foster more resilience when it's not there. So kind of my approach is sort of, all right, so when these processes are not occurring, when something, you know, just isn't happening, nobody can function around problem solving or nobody's able to talk about how things are going. We're not able to support each other. Like what, what is missing? Like what is getting in the way of fostering those necessary elements that you need to have um, to be able to have a positive outlook and flexibility and things, you know, because that's often what the absence of resilience does is it makes you really rigid and really fragile and things just, if it doesn't go exactly the way you plan, then the game is over. So I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from the, um, I, I like that there are a couple different things. I'm not sure if they're as, as commonly used in, in England as they are here, but the um, five or six protective factors, depending on who you talk to, <laughs> there's some protective factors that offset um, ACEs or the adverse childhood experiences, which are considered to be important in building resilience. And then also the um, healthy outcomes from positive childhood experiences study from 2000, um, well, the study of the positive childhood experiences study was by Christina Bethel in 2018. Um, but then there's a Tufts group that has this healthy outcomes from positive childhood experiences um, framework um, that I've been using in my practice, which I find really helpful. So I can no, talk about that more if, later too. If you... I can tell a brief story related to what, what Gretchen has said and probably her own experience. Uh, years ago, we were, we were running focus groups for um, um, military families, in particular adolescents. So more or less children from, let's just say, 11 to 17 or 18, more or less. And um, we ran a focus, ran various focus groups. When one was over, uh, people were milling around and kids were, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't have done this. We bought bowls of candy for kids. And I don't know if that was a good idea, but that's what we did. But at any rate, I, I, felt, I felt a presence next, standing next to me. And I looked down and there was, there was a very tiny, probably 11 or 12 year old uh, girl. And she looked up at me and, and she said, we can't talk about these things in our family. What we had been talking about in the focus group were how, how do kids do when a family member's absent and in danger and all, and all, of, and all of that. And I think that's, that's a very little, a very telling vignette, I think, uh, about some of the challenges that at least adolescent members in the family May, may go through. And that communication is, is not as open as kids would like it to be, uh, as, as one, one example. 
Right. I mean, it's so important. One of the, um, well, two of those seven positive childhood experiences that Bethel and her colleagues studied are the ability to feel like you can talk about feelings with your family and feeling supported through hard times. And those, we get stuck on those when I'm working with families over and over and over again. And I had a dad, just another example, a dad the other day, he was just like, I, he knew that the inability to talk about feelings with his childhood had affected him and he had mental health issues and was struggling with them as an adult. And he desperately didn't want his son to deal with the same thing. So he's like, help him, you know, how, how, how do we talk about feelings? But the dad didn't know how to start those conversations. I was like, well, do you ever you know, talk about how anybody is feeling at home. And we kind of, I, I, I bring it down to real basics. I'm like, okay, do you talk about how, how, how you take care of yourself when you're hungry, when you're cold, when you're tired? Okay, you've got those. Let's work on these other ones. So scared, worried, angry, sad. Like, how can we talk about that? How can it no longer be taboo? But I think it is it's so much, it's like an intergenerational thing. The parents never learn, the grandparents never learn. So we just don't talk, we just avoid that. We pretend it doesn't exist, which unfortunately then makes you pretty fragile and unable to have that like ability to wrestle and that distress tolerance. I'm interested uh, actually to hear, like you've mentioned a few different adversities um, that can act on a family. For example, Jay, you mentioned uh, families of war veterans, um, also mental illness of parents. Do you think the same key elements of resilience exist for different types of adversity acting on the family. So would the, the key building blocks of resilience be the same? Jay, maybe? Well, um, that's, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't, uh, I was, in truth, Nicole, I forget so much stuff as a septuagenarian <laughs> that I was pulling together <laughs> papers to, you know, to, kind of remind me of stuff uh, and somewhere I had a chart that that taught that tried to say tried to categorize um, adverse events according to for example um, is is the adverse event something that uh, is due to something the family did or is it truly external um, you know a natural disaster for example or, or what or what or what have you um, and then there's, uh, there's other kind of other ways to, to kind of split adversity. Um, does it bring shame upon the family? And again, that would be related to, you know, something the family has done or other people think they have, they have done, what, what, what have you. Th then there's adversities that are, are kind of acute, you know, they don't have a long life to them. Uh, uh, and then those that are, that are chronic, that, that they're always, they're always sitting there. And so when I think about you know, sort of how might various situations call for various skill sets from families. I, I first try to think about, well, what's the nature of the adversity um, as, it, as, it, as it stands? Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a handful of theories in family science that talk about so many different contextual effects on, on families. Uh, and, and a lot of it, uh, some is totally out of family's control some the family has some say about, and then others the family has uh, relatively more to say about. So, so as a partial answer to, to Nicole's question, I think that that's kind of one, one area of consideration. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting answer that 
There can be internal factors within the family, for example, like mental health or external factors acting on the family. And yeah, that will change how how you deal with them, essentially, and how you build resilience. Gretchen, is that something you uh, agree with? Yeah, no, I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. And I think um, that Jay mentioned something that I have found to be a real difficult point for families is that sort of my fault versus not my fault. If it's my fault, if I did something, then you get the shame. And then it becomes this vortex where you're afraid to talk about it, which then shuts down those positive childhood experiences. So the parents like, oh my gosh, I, you know, whatever, something happened. Even like if you're just talking about, um, you know, like something like mental illness, you know, like people don't even talk about mental illness. And then if they start seeing it arise in their children, they pretend it's not there. Like, I don't want him to be like me. So we're going to pretend we're not seeing what we're seeing. (laughs) And then they don't get them services. And they, you know, there are some families that are completely the opposite, but it basically, it, it boils down to how, whether or not the parent is ashamed of what's going on. So same thing with child abuse and neglect. Like I have some parents who come in and they're like, help me. I'm really struggling, you know, I yelled at him and I don't want to, and that's how my mom treated me and I don't want to do this and I need help. And so they can ask for help. And I think that's because they're not there. If they do have an element of shame and they're able to air it out and be like, okay, I, I don't like this, but I just don't want my kid to suffer the same way I did. So I think that shame factor is really crucial um, to be aware of as practitioners and people who work with families. And then, you know, just sort of, I just try Um, to always just be curious and not be judgmental. And when I say that to parents, look, I'm not judging you. I am not a perfect parent either. (laughs) And I work with families all day and, and this mess is universal. So just don't worry about it. It's all in how we respond. And I'm here to support you and help you. Just like when your child has an ear infection, I'm going to help you. I'm just here to help you. I'm not here to judge you. So tell me what's going on and we'll figure out a strategy. And then that's where those hope Um, building blocks really helped me because they kind of break it down into what are the elements of stress and dysfunction that are getting in the way of this family progress, like kind of, I don't know, progress isn't the right word, but moving in a direction where they're more resilient. Um, And so they kind of, you know, their environmental factors, social factors, emotional health and relational health factors. And we can kind of figure out, okay, what's working and what's not. And then what does this family need help with? So uh, something you said, well, first, let me mention this parenthetically. Uh, Gretchen, I think you're the pediatrician I wish we had uh, <laughs> when our three children were were growing up. I just want to put that in parenthetically, <laughs> uh, seriously. But but aside, aside from that, there's some, you, you mentioned some folks sort of come ready to take the step, ready to, to say, man, we got a problem going here or, or whatever. To me, that, that might be kind of the first and, and early indicator of, of resilience. That is a family saying to you, we, we, we want to make some changes here. Mm-hmm. You know, where the status quo is, is driving us to distraction and, and it's not working for us. So I would see that, that coming to you and opening up the conversation is the first step to show these people may wrestle well with adversity. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting, actually, um, this kind of idea of uh, motivation to change, which I think is a lot of the work we do as therapists is working on that motivation. And um, yeah, I'm thinking, how do we, the families that need the most help are perhaps not the ones that are going to come forward. Um, And I wonder how we deal with that as practitioners to encourage families 
to come forward to, be, to have help with building resilience. Do you have any experience with that, Gretchen? Yes. <laughs> so what I figured out um, works really well. So I feel like there are kind of two windows where families are really ready to change. One is when they have a brand newborn baby and they're staring at this baby and they're like, please, Lord, help me. I don't want to mess this up. I want to be the best parent I can be. And then, then when the children start having behavior problems, behavior problems to me are like a treasure chest <laughs> like when we start talking about so like the parents are like well yeah everything's going fine we do the well visit and then I say is there anything else I can help you with and like well not unless you have a magic wand for his sass or you know not unless you can fix the terrible twos and I'm like oh well let's talk about that a little bit so most of the time the behavior problems are when the child's having a feeling and nobody's talking about the feeling so that's my little window into, oh, let's talk about what's going on with your kid. And then of course the parents want the behavior problems to go away. So they're willing to try things. So what I do is I do these PDSA cycles with the families. So plan, do, study, act. And I say, you want this behavior problem to go away? Let's start paying attention to your child's feelings. If you catch the feeling early, help him with self-care, talk about the feeling, de-stress the situation, then you'll, you'll stop the meltdown. So you kind of move it backwards for the parents. So they're focused on the behavior. I'm like, well, I want you to think about what happened before that. And it is amazing. That is a complete, um, it's, <laughs> it's a good hook. Like it gets the parents and they're like, okay, whatever I'll, I want to do whatever I can to get rid of these behavior problems. Oh, it's about the fact that we're not talking about how we feel. Oh gosh. Well, if that's going to get rid of this, then I'll do it. So it's sort of, a, um, and so many families come to their pediatrician with behavior problem issues. So it's a nice way to use our kind of position at, in, in the community to help. Yeah. So this kind of relies on a system where families are checking in periodically with a pediatrician or with some form of a nurse visitation, for example. Um, obviously not all families have that. And do you think that it should kind of be a public health priority to make sure families are having that type of contact where they can then hear more about family resilience? I don't know what you think, Jay, but I would say yes. I mean, my experience is that the, um, you know, some of these families are literally trapped at home with their disobedient toddlers and they feel like they can't even take public transport to get to the store or anything because people make fun of them and they stare at them and they like, oh my gosh, your kids are bad. And there's just so much dysfunction. And then that dysfunction kind of exponentially traps the family in the dysfunction and they can't get out of it. So I think we really do have to take into account all the different factors and like not just anticipate that every family can get to a pediatrician like don't I'm hopefully um got a lot of things on my plate but hopefully going to be working with the home health nurses and like the WIC people too to try to help reach families where they're already so the WIC is the formula and food um, help for zero to three so trying to get all the people who are automatically interfacing with families in need um, to help you know foster that resilience at all steps of the way. Yeah, I, I would add to what Gretchen has, has already said. Um, part of our work is about how to build community connections. Um, and for years, we focused on military families, mainly because it, it's, a, it's an occupation that is, if you're a military member, it's an occupation that's all about change, transition, relocation, at least on the, on the US side, relocation maybe every three to four years, typically. Um, 
And, uh, and, and that implies uh, a fair amount of, I would call, normative loss. That is, uh, uprooting from friends, maybe uprooting from families, even in the area of, of high technology, um, you know, uh, people feel up, up, uprooted, even though they can connect by Zoom or phone or, or what have you. It's not the same as sort of that, that physical physical uh, presence. So, so, the, so the issue of ha how, to, how to sort of um, reach folks that are likely to be more isolated, are, are, are likely to be in, in their own world and not really sure what, what the other options are. I think it has a lot to do with, with community efforts or neighborhood efforts or the efforts of, of uh, churches and synagogues and mosques to help people to connect and not be so, not be so uh, isolated. Uh, in, in, you know, a lot of the literature talks about the merits of, uh, in, of uh, in, informal networks, uh, friends, neighbors, work associates, what have you. Uh, and, and it also talks about um, whole um, distant ties. Uh, the folks we come into contact with, um, the, the local coffee shop owner, uh, the dry cleaner, uh, whatever, that are, are peripheral in our network on the one hand, but yet amazingly important on the other hand uh, in our social life and to keep us connected. So, so I think that that's an area that is ripe for you know, continued nurturing and, and development so that this isolation uh, is, is minimized, reduced, or, or what have you. Yeah, so this is the idea you were talking about of one of the key components of connectedness. Am I right in saying, Jay? Yes. Yes. What do you think? It, 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 oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, what about the connectedness do you think builds resilience? Is it about the lack of loneliness and having someone there for social support? Or is it about being able to access specific resources for your family? Or both? Or yeah, what is it about connectedness that helps build resilience? Well, yes, it, it's all of that. Yes. Um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, you know, we talk about informal networks. But there's, we also talk about formal systems. Uh, Gretchen is part of a formal system. It's called, it's called medicine. It's called, it's called doctors, clinics, hospitals. Formal systems have an enormous role in this whole, in this whole business. And, and Gretchen has really pretty much described and, and really demonstrated what that, what that role is. Uh, the, the other piece that comes to mind is um, um, how does interaction and relationships function? And um, I'm, I'm reminded of the work of uh, Carolyn Cutrona and Dan Russell. Uh, I, I don't know what they're doing these days, but when I last talked to them, they were on the faculty at University of Iowa. And, and over the years, they, they've talked about what are the functions of social relationships? So they, they talk about such things, and I'm not gonna get all of these, but I'll get some of them. They talk about um, attachment as a relationship function. They talk about uh, reliable alliance, you know, being able to count on, on, on someone. They talk about uh, nurturance, again, uh, particularly the, the opportunity to nurture others as an important part of, of how relationships function. Um, and, and they talk about two or three others that, that don't come to mind. But, but I think we can specify, I mean, it, it, it's really clear, relationships function in some very specific ways and, and then the other piece that, that they talk about, and then um, uh, uh, an investigator named Robert Weiss had talked about years ago, 
was, are there certain relationships that provide certain important relationship functions to us? Or uh, is it more that, that a broad array of relationships pretty much accomplish the same, the same piece? That's another part of, of the discussion of, of why should we connect with people? What does it really, what does it actually do uh, uh, for us? Um, the, the other piece they talk about, just remembered, is, is something about affirmation. That is affirming that we learn more about ourselves the more that we learn about others around us. And, and it gives us a sense, it, well, it could give us a sense that we're doing better than we thought. It could also give us a sense that, man, we've got some hard work to do. So it can kind of, kind of cut both ways. I'm thinking now, when we talk about family resilience, I mean, what is our ideal outcome for making a family more resilient? What are we making them resilient from, would you say? You know, I, I feel, you know, again, you come to a bar where you get a haircut, you come to a doctor, I'm thinking about health and, and long-term outcomes, but I just, for, for the kids that I work with and the families I work with, I've just been passionately promoting the resilience as the health antidote to the adversity. And, you know, the adversity, like Jay was saying, sometimes it is something that's sort of seemingly kind of normal and okay, but it can still be extremely stressful for that child. And if if they are not in a family where they can talk about how they're feeling and they don't feel supported, they, they lose all their, you know, adults, other adults that cared about them. They lost their favorite, you know, teacher. They lost their football coach. They lost everything. You know, that can be adversity that that child is then going to stuff down. If they can't talk about it, it's going to lead to disease later. So to me, I just, I keep going back to the original adverse childhood experiences study, thinking that if we can facilitate more resilience within families, we will have better health outcomes. And the Positive Childhood Experiences study from 2019 did show that those seven protective um, or seven positive childhood experiences do have a protective effect when it comes to your long-term mental health outcomes. We haven't seen the same kind of study done with physical health outcomes, but yeah. um, my hope is it would be similar. Yeah, so I, I think as well, as researchers, we also need to think carefully about what outcomes we're measuring with resilience. I think there's a lot of focus on mental health, but potentially in the future, it would be really interesting to see if these resilience programs can have other benefits for children, perhaps with their physical health, with uh, peer adjustment in relationships, for example. Um, and I would definitely be interested in uh, seeing that in the future. You know, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Good. I was no, just going to say there's a lot of there's a lot of lists about like um, characteristics of resilient children, characteristics of resilient families, characteristics, and I look at those and they just make my blood boil as a provider because so many families do not have any of those things. And if you're like, I need to be more resilient, you know, resilience is good. And you look at this list and you're like, well, my kid's failing out of school, and you know, my husband was in jail, and I, you know, you look at it and you're like, I have none of these. I'm just, you know, I'm toast. Like, there's no way I can achieve these things. I think we need to make sure that that um, anyway, we don't just describe the outcome, but we help families figure out what it is, like, what is resilience, you know, and make that really legible for our families. So, go ahead, Jay. Sorry. Well, no, I, I really, this, this, I'm glad I didn't talk because what you said really gets me thinking about something else. This is good. Um, uh, in some writing we've done, and I've done some work with Pauline Boss, um, and we've, we've written about loss and resilience and all this, all this, all this business. 
we some we sometimes say, "Well, hold on, what's the problem with having resilience as a goal?" And this is exactly what Gretchen has just described, uh, because some 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 folks talk about resilience that uh, you 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 deal with an adversity, and then by the time you're done dealing with it, you're you're better off than you were to begin with. And that's in the literature quite often. I've thought about that. I thought, well, hold on. Is that, is that realistic? And is that really helpful to families? Or should we have a more tempered kind of look at resilience uh, such that, you know, um, it, it's as mundane as uh, paying your bills on time, getting your kids to school, uh, sending your kids to school with their homework, homework done. Um, so, so I, I guess I'm of, of I don't know, diff, different minds about all this business of resilience as, as a goal, uh, in, in that I think sometimes it's a lofty thing, which which may not be very realistic, and it's that's not a bad comment on families, by by the way, uh, it just might be something that that we've concocted as a discipline that's a little more artificial than it, than it, than it ought than it ought to be. I mean, when I was raising three kids when we were raising three kids, I felt successful about the mundane things. They got to school on time and they're going to school on a regular basis. And they, they, they've had the opportunity to have breakfast in the morning, whether or not they took the opportunity. So I, I don't know. Gretchen, I'm rambling a little bit here, but I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really a good point. And I know there's a lot of work in the UK as well at the moment to help children make sure they at least have a breakfast in the morning. And it can seem so simple to a lot of families, but that's something so important for their development. And I know there's a lot of charity work helping to support that in the UK. So I, I was also thinking while you were speaking that we often tend to think of resilience, well, in kind of popular science as um, something that's intrinsic, that's inside a person, that they're just characteristically more resilient. My thinking is that perhaps we should be thinking of resilience more as creating a sort of framework for families in terms of resources that exist for them and helping them have the ability to get those resources. Does that, do you think that's somewhere where we perhaps should be heading with resilience, kind of turning it away from the internal and thinking about our responsibility as a society to offer the resources that are there for families? I well, love that. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> well, well, I was thinking of, uh, and I may need some help with this, our, our colleague in, uh, oh, who writes about resilience from a contextual perspective. Um, He's up in Nova Scotia. Um, oh, very renowned scholar, but, but nevertheless, Nicole, he, he actually addresses this. And, and, and he says, hold on, um, why are we putting all the responsibility of, of a resilient life on the individual a, as if there weren't other, other influences that are way beyond the control of the individual to have a resilient life or a good life or a positive life or, or, or what have you. Uh, and, and, I, and I think, uh, so I do think it's it's kind of the responsibility to, to some level. Of course, as Gretchen well knows, in the U.S., oh mercy! If, if you if you suggest any kind of of, of broad-based social help to people now, you're labeled immediately as a socialist, you know, which is, has all kinds of stuff attached, you know, attached to that. 
But I think I think government uh, has has an obligation to kind of do what it can to give people uh, an extra step up on living a good a good life, which which you may call resilient life, you know what 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 have you. Um, I, my, my my concern, and, and this this is in my view, this is typical of the United States. We have this mythology that uh, if if you want to be successful in the United States, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not even sure what that looks like, but nevertheless, and, and you will be successful. It's the enormous lie in the United States, quite honestly. And, and, and there's data all around us, which would say it's an enormous, enormous lie. So I, I, think, I think there is a public responsibility. I, I think, for example, that uh, um, people should have housing one way or the other. I think people should should have the health care they need, one way or the other. I, I you know, I'm on Medicare. I can't tell you how happy I am with Medicare. I am totally happy with Medicare. You know, I, I'm just sorry I had to wait until I was well into my 60s before I before I got it. Uh, it's an example of sort of the the role that that society, as evidenced in government, can play. That is very positive. It makes a dramatic difference in people's lives. And just to check, Medicare is uh, an insurance in. Well, it's, the it's, our, it's our it's our socialized medicine program for uh, for for older adults typically, um, and then there's Medicaid, which which is kind of a companion for for families that that are you know financial need again have a broader base needs than than say. A, the average retiree, or what, or what, or what have you, it, it's it, to, to me. Gretchen knows this better than I do because she she's she's in medicine. To, to me, it's one of the best examples and one of the few examples in the United States of what happens when you say we're 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 gonna we're gonna make sure that all these folks have the medical care that they 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 need, or certainly most of the medical care. That, that they need. It's not a perfect program by, by any means. Did you want to add anything, Gretchen? Well, I would just say that I think in, in the process of working with families, I have, you know, I think when I started doing the Resilience University work with families, I was focused mostly on the relational health and emotional wellness sort of part, thinking that if they can be, if families can interact in a healthy way, it will help to foster that resilience. Um, so as I do that work with families, then I start learning more about the role of parental stress. And when parents are stressed, they can't relate. They can't hear feelings. Johnny comes home, he's angry. They say, don't you yell at me, young man, go to your room. And nobody's ever heard Johnny's feelings. He doesn't feel supported. He had a bad day. He's sent to his room to be alone. So I start talking to the parents about, well, what's going on when you can't listen to Johnny or you can't you know, hold space for his big feelings. Well, you know, we're about to get evicted from our apartment. I can't make enough, you know, we don't have enough money for food this month. Um, we just got kicked off of, of like main care or our Medicaid version in Maine. So like I started thinking, wow, so these supports are fundamental for families to be able to stay present 
and have those seven positive childhood experiences. And they're not listed on there, like the ability to have food on the table. But if you don't have a safe place to live and you don't, you know, so that's where, again, keep going back to this. Um, the Tufts people came up with this framework. They call it the Healthy Outcomes from Positive Childhood Experiences Framework. And they just basically have these building blocks. And each one, one is emotional health, one is relational health, one is your engagement or your social, you know, kind of your social dynamic. And then one is your environment. Um, and another, with the engagement, Another thing that I think has been interesting is the, the online kind of communities. So a lot of parents with COVID have started being part of bigger online groups, which can both be good and bad because sometimes you look at the online group and you're like, I don't know who you're talking about, but that's not my family. <laughs> you know? And sometimes you find like a real kindred spirit and a group that like, you're like, oh yeah, that's what my experience is the same as yours. So I think that has been both a good and a bad thing, but um, I think it does give people a little bit more opportunity for that social connection and supportedness that even if you're in a rural area like we are up here in Maine with more moose than people sometimes, you know, gives you a way to connect with others. Yeah, I think the, yes, go ahead. I just want to mention the fellow I was thinking of was Michael Unger, U-N-G-A-R, and he's written a lot about sort of the, 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 the responsibility of context and, and extra familial factors for resilience, Michael Unger. Cool. Thank you. So I was just thinking actually one of the real benefits for families of having social media is that they can find contacts that are having the same sort of experiences and difficulties as them and that can really reduce the shame factor on families as well and I've really noticed that that's something that helps families. I also notice as a parenting coach when you tell a family a lot of parents feel this way it's stressful when your child's screaming and kicking and you're in a supermarket and you don't know what to do yeah a lot of parents would shout in that circumstances I understand parent a lot of parents feel the same and then you really see a change in the other person as that kind of shame feeling reduces and they're like oh I am I'm a normal person I'm reacting to a difficult situation in a very normal way and I think that really creates an opportunity to be able to work together to find solutions to those a kind of problem focused approach okay well what do I do in that situation but I think it can be really hard on families when they don't have the right external support there and that makes it very tricky um, yeah, I also just wanted to um, add actually to our discussion that, so I've been running a study during the pandemic of how families are coping in the Netherlands. And um, what I've actually found in my study sample, which is a fairly educated sample of people, it was just an opportunity survey study. And so people were generally highly educated, didn't really have financial problems. And I've been following them since uh, April last year. Uh, so through two lockdowns, and we've really seen big changes in how parents are coping and children. And so we saw during the lockdown, they were having much more, um, many more issues with depression, anxiety, stress, but also having um, really lacking a feeling of self-efficacy as a parent as well. Um, and using more physical punishment, uh, using less praise with their children. So really having a big effect on parents. And we see that in both lockdowns compared to the time in between where restrictions were lessened. 
And I'm thinking that's a really good example of how even if you take a parent that does have quite some financial resources there and maybe hasn't come from such an adverse environment, when you create isolation and you just change things up suddenly in their life, then it has such a, a big impact on family dynamics. And I think that also says, well, we shouldn't really blame people for their circumstances. So if you, if you have any reflections uh, on that as well. That's such a good point. You know, if you take away, like you take a family that, um, I mean, the first thing I thought of while you were talking was like the refugee families that have been through these inordinate amounts of adversity and yet they come out incredibly healthy in the end. Like they never lost their kind of, their coping strategies or their ability to communicate. They, their support network may have changed, but it didn't dissolve completely. Like they had something that they carried through that process. Um, and, you know, and then you think about a family, right, that, that has seemingly everything and you just take away the ability to send the kids to the after school program and it, everything implodes. Like you just can't take that last little bit of stress. Um, and that's, I, you know, I just, I, I find it fascinating and it's also such a wonderful opportunity, but sometimes I feel like a lot of the families that look as though they're thriving and they're, they would, they would get, check boxes on all the lists of what a resilient child look like looks like they're they're not that resilient they just know how to do the things and they have the means to do the things but they never talk about feelings they don't actually really support each other they just know the kids know if i misbehave i'm gonna get my butt smacked or something you know so they just toe the line they do everything they go to school they do their homework they have great grades they do their sports and then you know but they're not raising resilient children so i think that's another <laughs> Like kind of looking at the external, I think what you're doing is wonderful, like looking at like what is going on and why are these changes so hard for families? Because it can um, be different than how it appears. This also, I mean, I think both your comments really point out, um, I think sort of the, the business of how, how people define situations. Um, and, you know, in, in sociology, the, 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 whole, the whole study of how various of us will, will seemingly experience a similar event, but interpret it in dramatically different ways. Uh, and so uh, we can, we often, some of us do well, some of us do less well in, 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 uh, with, the, with the same adversity. And part of it has to do with how, how individuals and families define situations. Some of us, as you know, quickly go to catastrophe thinking and others of us quickly go to, all right, how can I solve this thinking? So I think in the mix of kind of trying to understand sort of variation and how well families do, is, is this, and I don't know how, I don't know how to put my really my finger on it and say what, what the it really is, but we know that we perceive things in dramatically different ways. Uh, and, and years ago, um, a little phrase was coined, if situations are defined as real, they are real in their consequences. And I think that that often plays out in trying to understand variation in, in families doing well. So um, my next question is really a, a practical one. So how can we as practitioners uh, who work with families actually help support resilience with uh, a strength-based approach, do you think? So I can, I can start with that one. So I, um, I feel like that is um, a really good way to engage families with um, what do you need 
to help you feel like you can cope with stressful situations better. But if you just jump right to that, sometimes um, some families shut down and they're not as able to participate. So what I like to do is start with the, okay, let's kind of, and I map out the four different building blocks from the HOPE um, framework. And I um, have the kids and the parents write out kind of like, so who is that person that you can always go to for help? Um, and sometimes they don't have anybody. They'll look at me and they'll be like, we don't have one of those people. Um, and then the kid will say, well, what about grandma? And mom's like, well, grandma lives in California now. And, and the kid's like, but I Zoom with her sometimes. Like, okay, so let's put grandma there. So sometimes there are these people in their lives, but they've kind of written them off or they don't rely on them or they feel like they're having their own stressors so they don't go to them. So figuring out what are the strengths that this family already has, like what are the factors that they already have that maybe they just need a little more help with, like they love going for walks or they love doing, they have a special family tradition or some outings that they really love, but maybe they stopped doing it because of COVID. Well, how could you translate that into something that you could do safely during a pandemic? Or, you know, how can you use what you already have going for you as a family and then foster that um, to build more resilience um, rather than just saying, well, clearly you're not doing any of the right things. So let me tell you what to do. So it works, works nicely in the clinical setting. Yeah, I, I, I think sort of getting away from the, the problem focused mm -hmm. approach is, is what you've described and, and really smart. Because um, I, I mean, I, I hope I'm not naive in saying all individuals and families do have strengths uh, in, in various ways uh, and, 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 not, not, and different strikes as, as well. And I think part of the challenge is how do we help families sort of identify where their strengths are, sort of, uh, you know, think about them, give them a name, label them. I, I, think, I think that's very instructive because it's, it's so easy. And I'm this way myself, it's so easy to kind of go down the problem, the problem tunnel and suddenly you lose sight of sort of what the resources are as well. There's a, there's a community uh, example of this. I don't know how, if you've read, um, there's a book called Building Communities from the Inside Out. And it's been around for a very long time. Uh, I may have still been in graduate school, but nevertheless, I saw that smile, uh, Gretchen, just so you know that. Um, but they, they said, we can, look at, we can look at a community or a neighborhood or a city uh, through two different lenses. And if you take the deficit lens, you may see uh, potholes in the street, broken windows, uh, somebody slumped against the side of a building. I mean, you know, whatever, thinking of urban areas. Uh, if, if, if you take a, a, a more of a proactive, productive, strengths-based approach, what do you see in that same, let's say, neighborhood in the city? Well, you, you may see... Uh, doctor's offices, you may see a hospital, you may see a school, you may see a library. If you, if you switch kind of the lens, you get a very different view of what's really going on in, in a neighborhood. And, and in the, same, the same would layer onto families or, or, or individuals. Um, in a lot of the work we do, I, I, I rail against this, there's still a preponderance of research out there that takes a singular problem deficit lens in looking at military members and families. Um, and they, they, a lot of studies still fail to look at, while at the same time there's stuff that's challenging going on with military members and families. At the same time, 
there's they're making good decisions. They're they're trying to figure out how to get from A to B to C to D. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the same issue of what we're talking about at at, at the moment. It's how how do you sort of activate the, the 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 plus points that are in families that may have become lost in the shuffle or 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 buried or or what have you. So I work with um, an American uh, parenting program, the Family Checkup, and uh, it's very much about identifying um, strengths in particular families. So we work together, uh, we compile some assessments, questionnaires, a motivational interview, um, some observations, and we really look at the context the family is in the relationship between the parents, um, the financial situation. We also look at the parents' mental health. And then we look at their specific parenting skills as well and the behavior of the child and really try to see them in context. And I know that this program really has had a lot of success uh, in America with accessing disadvantaged parents. And we're now trialing it in the Netherlands and we have big hopes for it. And I think it does come under this sort of strength-based approach it's not on the surface a resilience program but I'm really getting a good feeling working with it with parents that they are really identifying their strengths and I guess that is a big part of building resilience one thing uh, as someone that works in prevention is I know there's quite there's some limited evidence about how prevention programs really work universally so do we just use them with people that have had adversities that we can kind of spot like the, the traditional adversities particularly I know that we work with like uh, people from disadvantaged economic backgrounds or with mental health problems maybe war veterans but can we work towards something more universal with families that can maybe do you have to have that adversity there or could we from the beginning be, be building resilience for families right from the start what do you think Yes, I think it should be more universal. I've always thought that resilience should be something sort of like we put fluoride in the water. I think I mentioned that when I did the um, the other podcast with you guys, but just like this is something that everybody needs help with. And we don't only give fluoride to the kids who already have cavities. We give it to everybody, you know, not just the people we know are getting Coca-Cola in their baby bottles, but like we give it across the entire landscape so that everybody gets it. And, you know, I go back to thinking about, um, that example I used before, like sometimes the families that are that have more means, uh, they're not necessarily more resilient. They're just more able to hide the mess. So it, they appear more kind of like as though things are going well, but that doesn't mean they don't need the help with resilience. In fact, some of the families that I've worked with, um, I had one family actually who had um, her son was the boy was going to a private preschool. The preschool teacher came with the mother to do the Resilience University sessions. Like they were so invested in this little boy that all the resources in the entire universe, but we're having really hard times talking about feelings and supporting each other through, like they didn't have the positive childhood experiences that you would think they um, you know, would have for their level of means and, and the, how much they were investing physically and financially in this little boy. And so, yes, I think it needs to be something that's really broad-based. And I think when we start narrowing it down to, oh, that person needs to be more resilient, 
we're going to completely miss the boat and then we're going to attach stigma to needing help with resilience, which in Maine right now, the problem, we have some wonderful parenting programs, but they're all sort of the things that you get sent to when DHS is about to take your kids away or something. So they're not the, they're not like freely accessible to your average parent. Most parents, if they want parenting advice, um, you know, they go online um, or if they come ask their pediatrician and we are a variable use, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's how do we help everybody? I mean, I Feel like those parenting programs should be you know relatively universal like everybody should get a little bit of help it's not intuitive sometimes it's really hard my comment is well said this is actually something i i've been thinking about you you mentioned about being online and i know that yeah we have a generation coming through now where i know people my age and younger have spent most of their life finding out information online and that actually within parenting programs there's not so much available that's reliable online I recently saw an article and it said um 100 ways to be the perfect parent um, which just isn't <laughs> realistic in any sense so that's the kind of information that sounds hard that's too hard yeah well, no I'm tired already. <laughs> no one can do a hundred things at once. And I thought, and I, I looked online and I did this search about what support really is there that's reliable for parents. And there really isn't that much. And I'm thinking, do you think the, the programs that we're offering, prevention-based programs, there is a space for them to be more widely available, maybe through uh, online platforms? Could that be a way forward for our prevention work? Well, one thing that comes to mind, uh, and, and, and Gretchen's familiar with this, in the U.S., there's this uh, uh, cooperative extension, which is found in uh, all the states and, and territories. And very often, they have some, some really uh, vetted um, pro programming for, for parents, as an example, a lot of programming, but, but for, for parents and all of that. Uh, the, the beauty of it is that it, it, it's been vetted. It's, it's just, you know, you, you, you actually, you won't see something that says a hundred things you need to do to, to whatever. Uh, but, but those, those extension programs are often available online. Uh, and my experience is they're, they're all free for the taking. Uh, the, 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 the big issue I think has been historically, how do you, how do you inform the population that the resources are out there uh, and they're, and they're vetted professionals have, you know, gone, you know, argued and, and brought in research-based evidence and all the rest for that. But that's a system in the U.S. that has a lot of, a lot of potential. Yeah, of course, I know as well that a lot of the programs you have to pay for uh, as well that you come across online, the ones that have at least been researched um, very much and have research evidence I suppose because it's to pay back the cost of developing the program but obviously this then creates uh, yeah it means some people can have access to it and some people can't and I think that's something we still need to work on how to overcome that to well, bring evidence-based yeah. help to all parents. The, the other the other fallacy in the U.S. Nicole is that there's really a lot of people who don't have adequate connectivity mm. to go online for anything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, let's take the state of Georgia where I live as an example. There are still a lot of areas where, you know, it, it was it was well and good for 
for schools not to be face to face, except that there were a lot, a lot of kids that they didn't have adequate connectivity to, to, to stay in school re remotely. Um, there were some communities that actually um, uh, brought in um, wireless capacity on an emergency basis so that kids would be able to connect and, and stick with their, with their school work. So, so part, part of the, the, my concern about helping anybody is that there's still a, still a group of folks who have formidable barriers and, and very, very basic life barriers to being able to take advantage of some of all the good and great things that are, that are out there. The connectivity just being one, you know, one, one, one example. Uh, in, in enormously rural areas here, um, you know, if, if, peop if people want to go uh, to the grocery store, they may drive 90 minutes. I mean, there, there's, there's just some areas that we don't, may not think about that, that even the smallest things uh, become a, a big barrier to living life well. Any <laughs> closing points uh, written of anything you can think of that you want to uh, close with? You can have a couple of seconds. Oh, I don't think so. I think I was beautiful. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It was really uh, nice to speak to you. And I'm really interested to hear more about your work yeah, in the US yes, in the future. Yeah. That sounds yeah. wonderful, yeah. All right, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities, and organizations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to, understanding of, and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.